What's up, peacenecks? Today's podcast is a very special podcast. I've been doing fake commercials for fun, and um, I know some of you enjoy them. A little levity before diving into topics like addiction and police brutality, the war on drugs. But uh, while listening back to the conversation I had with today's guest, I got angry. So today there will be no funny commercial, but I'll get back to them next week. So I got angry. Um, I was angry that more people aren't paying attention, that average Americans are okay having the largest prison population in the history of civilization. And they may not think it's okay that 105 people every day die from drug overdose, but they don't seem to care enough to look at what's causing this and make these deaths stop. And I know why this is. My guest today knows why this is. It's because addiction is stigmatized heavily. People may think we should fix the opioid problems, but at the end of the day, they just blame the addict. In the end, it's their fault they're dying. It's their fault if they contract hepatitis or HIV for sharing needles. And putting the blame on them is easy because it means you're off the hook. Society's off the hook. I don't think we should take the easy way out when it's human lives on the line. My guest today has been working for a long time with mothers across the country to change the stigma of addiction, to change drug sentencing laws. She fought to legalize cannabis in her home state of California. She is one of the founders of and executive directors of Moms United to End the War on Drugs and A New Path, Parents for Addiction Treatment and Healing, which promotes therapeutic rather than punitive drug policies. So look her up. I urge you to join her cause. Go to anewpath.org and momsunited.net. Her name is Gretchen Bergman. Now, before we jump right into this great conversation I have with Gretchen, I'd like to tell a, a quick story. Um, I'm currently reading a book uh, that Johan Hari referenced um, by Ronald K. Siegel called Intoxication, uh, where he studied drug use in wild animals. And uh, the water buffalo story uh, hit me especially hard. I felt awful for those animals, but... Um, the story made me like, even sadder when I realized that the same thing is happening with people and children today. So the water buffalo in Cambodia and Vietnam, um, they didn't mess much with the poppies, the uh, opium-containing flower. Um, a few would, would uh, munch and get high, but uh, they were the loners. And like, after uh, some of them overdosed on them too. And after that, they had found some of them had underlying health co- uh, issues, which may have led to them self-medicating. But most of the water buffaloes avoided the poppies altogether. And um, then the Vietnam War started, and the U.S. started dropping bombs. Uh, this story makes me think of my dog, who's actually ironically named Lieutenant Dan. But, um, I think of Dan on July 4th, when the neighborhood you know, erupts with fireworks, you know, our way of celebrating independence to recreate a war, but only mostly benign simulation. But my dog, Lieutenant Dan, he isn't in on the party. He doesn't understand com- like complex machinations of democracy and freedom or the illusion of. No. He goes to the corner and trembles until the explosions stop. When the U.S. started dropping bombs, the water buffalo went to the poppy fields and they all began using. People go to drugs for the same reasons. In the literal sense, the Vietnam soldiers had a huge rate of heroin abuse, and most of them stopped when they got home, when the shooting and bombing stopped. And uh, in an analogous sense, people have bombs going off all around them in the form of sexual and physical abuse, mental abuse, abandonment, death of a loved one, a parent, child, a friend. And when the trembling starts, and they cannot stand another second in their own skin, they seek refuge wherever they can find it. And for a lot of them, they find it in drugs. I don't know why we have to make it so hard on them when they're in these states. We have to make them, you have to go to the streets to score something that could end up killing you. You, um, If you get caught with it, we're going to send you to jail. They have jails that have the word, I'm an addict on the back to shame you. You've been treated like garbage your whole life, and now we're going to make you feel worse. It's a cycle of abuse. Why can't we offer help for these people? I just don't understand it. And I know on this podcast, a lot of what I'm saying is uh, I'm preaching to the choir, but if this story stabs you in the heart the way it did me, then use it. You know, next time you're in a situation where someone says something ignorant, 
tell them this story. You know, open their mind to the idea that addicts are not just horrible people that want to abuse the system or whatever it is you possibly could think that it is. It's not. You know, next time you're at a social event and someone says something about their deadbeat drug you know, addict nephew or something like vague and horrible like addicts are worthless scumbags. Um, if we just let them all OD, the problem would solve itself. Something a fireman actually here in Fort Myers said to me. And not only is that one of the like most horrible things I've ever heard, it's also so extremely ignorant. I mean, if, if you if you let the people who are hurting and you you let them they're hurting so bad that they went to using drugs like heroin, you let them all die. You haven't cured anything. Every next group of kids coming of age will have a percentage of abuse and mental illness. Until we do something to help that, we're going to keep seeing a lot of this. And, and then a high percentage of those people will turn to drugs. And what, you just let them die too? And then the next group, and then the next group. And with all those deaths, you're going to see a lot more grief. It's going to lead to even more drug abuse. So, I mean, obviously that's a stupid thing that he said. I, I shouldn't have even had to explain why that's stupid. But maybe someone's listening thinks something you know, ignorant like that. And um, I don't know. I don't know what everybody thinks, you know, on the inside. People, most people would have the um, common sense not to say it out loud, but um, some people just, they, they, that's what they actually believe, and they believe it so so much that they're willing to just talk about basically genocide. It's absolutely insane. But I don't know what people think, but that's this is the way I think about uh, drug abuse. And the more I study it, the, the, the sadder the reality becomes... Um, the more I, I understand what the drug problem is, what our policy is, why the drug policies even exist. It's, it's all just such a huge mess. We got to change this. And that's what this podcast is about. So, um, you know, and, uh, you know, think about this. Our, our current U.S. drug policy is closer in line with that fireman's comments than it should be. You know, like our U.S. drug policies almost, yeah, let them die off. Um, it's, it's, it's just awful. So also a quick disclaimer. Um, that was one random fireman who was just, you know, just just an asshole. Uh, I do not think anything negative about firemen in general. They're the first responders. They save lives constantly. Countless lives have been, um, still are saved every day for firemen. So you know, nothing against them just because that was that guy's profession. Anyway, let's go ahead and jump into this uh, podcast. Remember, follow me on Instagram, um, Aaron Akulis. Do a... Twitter, the Peace on Drugs podcast, YouTube, my YouTube channel, subscribe to that, the Peace on Drug podcast. We just put up some funny videos. Um, like I say, I do try to um, have fun with this sometimes, but um, this podcast today just really hit me hard. And um, as it should have, I, I, um, anybody that listening, you know, this is something we got to, we got to start, we got to, we have to stand up and do something about this. But Gretchen was, as a, was an amazing guest to have. So I hope you guys enjoy. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. Drugs are menacing our society. Any thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. Hello. Hi, Aaron. Hi, how are you? No, two different last names. I just saw that Seaforth and 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 Akulis. Yeah, Akulis is. I changed my name to Akulis. It's still Seiferth on different things, and people still um, when I play shows, they won't change my name on the board. I show up and it says Aaron Seiferth, but uh, Akulis is my uncle's last name, Jackie's uh, maiden name, and um, okay. so I, it was an easier name for my fans when I play music to recognize the name Akulis versus Seiferth. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so great to finally meet you. Thank you. It's nice to meet you too. I don't know if you know how I met her, but um, my son, who is also named Aaron, his girlfriend uh, Bria Rose does is a friend of Jackie's, and she did a yoga uh, fundraiser for a new path at Jackie's house. Yes. And that's how I reconnected. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so she told me. She said you gave a speech there about. Yeah, just a little talk to say what we're about, and yeah, she yeah. said you'll love you'll love Aaron. Yes. Yeah, I don't get to talk to her enough. Our schedules don't always that, uh, line up, but she did call me and told me all about you and, and you know, said I had to have you on. Um, so tell, let's, if you could tell my guests a little bit about A New Path, I was, uh, I was looking at the website and you know, the, the idea, I guess, is therapeutic rather than punitive drug policies is what you guys promote, but you, tell, tell us a little bit about it. Absolutely. 
Uh, we started in 1999, uh, Build the Path, and that stands for Parents for Addiction Treatment and Healing. And um, we work to reduce the stigma associated with drug use, substance use, and addiction. And we work for a therapy, we advocate for therapeutic rather than punitive drug policies. So starting way back in 1999, there was three co-founders. Um, all of us had children, and when I say children, I mean young adults who were um, not only struggling with uh, substance use disorders, but also with criminal justice involvement. And so yes. we, we began to speak out. And um, in 2000, I served as a state chair of Proposition 36, which mandates treatment instead of incarceration for nonviolent drug offenders. And, uh, and it passed. And, um, and it, you know, there's some flaws as, as you move along. We start advocating for a lot of different harm reduction strategies and criminal justice issues. But the important thing was it, it showed that people were ahead of the politicians in understanding that drug use was it uh, should be handled as a public health rather than a criminal justice issue. And it started a sea change of uh, drug policy reforms across the nation. So that was our beginnings. Um, uh, my son had been arrested for marijuana possession and spent 11 years cycling in and out of prison uh, for that, for relapses and things like that. Really a, a, a waste of, of wonderful human potential. <laughs> it's all, and, it's uh, awful. I mean, the, the idea that, that the drug is so bad for you, so what we're going to do is arrest you and make your life hell, that doesn't make any sense because you've, ta you've taken someone's life and the whole purpose is because it's bad for them. Yeah, and, and putting it on hold and subjecting them to all kinds. I mean, the concrete jungle of uh, barbed wire violence, uh, et cetera. It's just, it's, it, it's horrible. Luckily, uh, many years since, I mean, in we're California here, um, we have prop passed Proposition 64. I was one of the three signers for it, which uh, legalizes marijuana. So a lot of these, I mean, he never would have, uh, the charge he had has been since expunged, but too many people don't have attorneys, et cetera, to, to go back and, and help them to expunge their records uh, for yes. simple marijuana possession, uh, you know, charges. Yeah, I still but have a record from when I was 18. I have a marijuana possession charge that stopped me from getting jobs my whole life. It's... Yeah, right. And that there's, uh, you, I, you probably know about the effort to ban the box. So where you, uh, when you're trying to get a job you have to there's a box that says have you ever been arrested or you know have you ever do you have yes. a felony on your record and 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 that's i mean look at what it does in terms of jobs and in terms of uh, in some states schooling assistance and yeah and, if you've um, done your time why are you still getting punished for it housing etc and 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 a lot of times you should there's that's the last place you should be is in prison for, for if, if you're if you're starting to struggle with a substance disorder or if you're just caught at using uh, pot recreationally that can just uh, totally destroy a life. Um, mm. uh, certainly a life on hold and um, and I and and the prison experience uh, is not one that anybody should. It's not healthy. It's uh, you know it's it's a violent atmosphere and. Um, mm. No, the, law, the laws shouldn't be worse than the drug themselves. If, if the laws are making your life harder than the drug itself would have done, then, then we're doing it wrong. Well put. And I love your, the name, the, the piece on us. You know, in, in 2009, we started Moms United to End the War on Drugs, not as a new organization, but as a way of expanding our, um, our work. Because we had a lot of people saying, we need a new path in our area. How do we do that? And I'm like, oh, I don't really know how to do that. I don't have the bandwidth for that. But instead, I created this collaborative campaign. And it were Moms United to end the war on drugs, which is not a war on drugs. It's a war on people. It's a war on families. It's a war on drugs. Right? It is. And a lot of poor people yeah. suffer the worst, too. I mean, all people well, from all walks of life suffer. But, you know, it really puts a heavy burden on, our, on the poor communities. But the truth is, it is targeted against communities of color and and poverty, yep. and um, and we know that now. I mean, we always suspected it, but um, you know, my my son was born in 1971, the same year that President Nixon declared the war on drugs. So, but we know now that that was to keep uh, keep uh, marginalizing a whole community of uh, people of color. 
Yeah. Um, to try to quell so, the uh, civil rights movement. If you can arrest them for smoking marijuana, then you can, you know, get them off the, from protesting or whatever. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's been, you know, almost 50 years of really drug war devastation. And, and the devastation is, is, is not just, you know, arrest and incarceration, but it's also accidental overdose. People are afraid to reach out if they're ha- struggling with a substance use disorder um, for fear of criminal justice in, in involvement. And it's the drug war violence. I mean, we're in San Diego, right, you know, border town. So um, so we can really see that viscerally. Um, and, um, and, and lately our campaigns have been uh, talking more about the triple crisis of COVID-19, of opioid overdose, and of systemic racism and how that all intertwines and the yes. war on immigrants and the war on women and LGBTQ, et cetera. So, um, so our work kind of keeps expanding um, as, we, as we make some headway in drug policy reforms. And we also have to look at all the societal damage of this way of thinking. And at the root of it is stigma. And all of these policies are stigma producing. Right. Yes. yes. And I read on your website, it said 105 people in America die every day from a drug overdose. And you have countries like Portugal that have decriminalized and they've got those numbers almost to zero. And they still have addiction, but they have a better way of handling it. Are we saying that these people aren't, their lives aren't worth of saving? Or are they just not important? They're Americans. They're dying every day. I was able to go to Portugal with a group of um, drug policy reformer activists. And um, and it is amazing. Yes, their their drug overdose went almost to zero, but on top of that, their HIV, Hep C, way down. And what I could see viscerally was that stigma was down. I mean, they were treating people like human beings, and 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 what they did was they they took money from the criminal justice system and pumped up their public health uh, systems so that they actually could offer people help. But not, you know, ma- mandated. But, but, but to offer it, I care about you. It would, would you like this service? Would you, uh, you know? It, and it's, it's just a whole way of, a different way of talking uh, and, and uh, of communicating with people. I care about you. Yes. Can I help? Exactly. Right? And like you said, the stigma, the stigma for drug addiction. In this country, there was one thing I was reading that um, with the methadone clinics, you uh, they, when they made it a law, you had to. Uh, you can go to the methadone clinics to get help uh, for withdrawals, withdrawals or whatever. There would be a line. They would make you wait in the morning so everybody would see you on the streets. And then they passed a new law that you said your doctors could prescribe it if you have health insurance. So people in the middle class are not standing in the line. You're only seeing the people who don't have health insurance. So it makes drug addiction look like a certain way when it's not that. You also have people, lawyers and doctors, who are also addicts. But they're not standing in that line. So addiction looks like something that it's not. Yeah, I- you're, you're absolutely right, and and which reminds me too that stigma runs so deep. It runs within the healthcare community as well, and and certainly in society, um, and 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 also in the recovery community because there's this sense that if you're on methadone, you're less than somebody who's doing abstinence only. Which you know we're working with trying to get those abstinence only folks to think that way to embrace the harm reduction community and say that one size does not fit all. There are many pathways to recovery and they're all valid, you know? Yes. Recovery, it, recovery uh, the whole concept of recovery has to be broadened. If somebody is able to keep a job and have relationships with their friends and family, et cetera, that's a successful person. I don't care if they're on methadone, buprenorphine, um, uh, you know, mental health uh, 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 drugs that they need to take in order to stay balanced. We shouldn't care, and we sh- it shouldn't be our business. Exactly. <laughs> certainly not. Certainly not criminal justice business. Right? Definitely not a criminal problem. And and usually, drug addiction is usually what uh, I think Johan Hari brought it up as. It's the smoke. The building's on fire, and what you're seeing is the smoke. And you're trying to blow the smoke away when you need to put the fire out. And that's mental. It's usually childhood trauma. That's the biggest one. But you also have uh, other mental health just disorders in the brain. And you wouldn't look at someone with cancer who is trying to trying to cure their own or heal their own cancer as an as a as a criminal. You're trying to yeah. heal something wrong with you. So many times it, it's it's 
and I don't want to say self-medicating, but it, uh, it, it's, it's sort of fixing what you know to be wrong and trying to make it right for you. And, and um, you know, so uh, self, self-medication isn't really the right word, but that it, it goes along that, those lines that, that, that people are taking care of their it needs. Is. Yeah, and in countries that have decriminalized and some places like Switzerland have legalized heroin, and it doesn't mean you go to Walgreens and buy heroin. You go to a doctor if you have an addiction and the doctor will prescribe heroin. They also prescribe with the heroin counseling, and they get a lot of people off of it that way. Yeah. Well, why are we so far behind the rest of the world? You know, you, you're, you're citing what, what I'm saying, too. Um, in America, we have an addiction to, to the criminal justice system. We have an addiction to incarceration. We are... We are shamefully, uh, you know, shameful uh, incarcerators. In, in, we have in the highest incarceration rate in the history of the world, not just the world today, but in the history of the world. And um, and privatized prisons are, I mean, we have for-profit prisons. That makes no sense to me. Why is people profiting off of people's lives? I mean, that's legal slavery. In some of these places, people are making products for companies on, with free labor, it, and they're nonviolent offenders. It's all it's horrible. I, I'm hoping that we're seeing a trend to do away with the, the private prisons. I mean, there's a lot of people up in arms about it, and, and hopefully we can. Uh, and it's hard to change laws too when you have so uh, when you have these lobbyists that, that are making so much money off of people who who have drug problems who are incarcerated, um, and then you try to change laws and you have the the the, the prison complex, uh, you know, fighting against these. Uh, these really necessary changes um, and humanitarian tolerant policies, you know, that, uh, and, and unfortunately, I mean, a lot of the work that we do with speaking out is because if you haven't been touched directly, which, you know, some people haven't, and but, but very few, they don't really know what goes on in prisons. They don't really understand addiction. Their whole thing is, I mean, I always say what, what you fear you hate and and so it's so important. And 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 you, what you fear is what you don't understand, right? So so it's so important for people to speak out, tell their stories. I mean, um, my, and then as a mother, uh, it's a fine line between it's when it's your story and when it's your son's story and when it's your your joint story. So uh, I'm very very lucky that both both of my sons had had decades long. A heroin addiction, but are both in long-term recovery and are both speaking out and have had given me permission to speak out to tell our story, right? Yeah. Um, and and I and, and I'm seeing more and more people having um, uh, the courage to speak out uh, because if we don't speak out, it doesn't change. Exactly, and we have to, and, and it is the stigma that has to change because our country, like what you asked, why we're so far behind the rest of the world, and I think it is our elections are so fueled by emotions that. If somebody were to come out and say, we're going to change drug policies and decriminalize, then the other candidate just says they're pro-drugs and they want to legalize and have everybody on dope, and then they lose the election. When ultimately the prohibitionists and the anti-prohibitionists, we want the same thing, right? We want, the, we want a healthier society. We want less people on drugs. That's our, that's our cause. It's not like, oh, I want to legalize drugs so that everybody can get high. No. We want people to be healthier, and that's what it comes down to. Well, it was funny when I was, um, and my sons thought this was funny anyway, and uh, that when I was uh, advocating for legalization of marijuana in California, somebody uh, said to my son, oh, your mother must be a big pothead, huh? And he, he laughed. He says, no, no, she, she never liked it, she herself. But but she fights for people to have the right to put it, 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 in their bodies whatever they think is right for them, right? Yeah, it's an autonomous adult. Make your own decisions. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and for me, it's, uh, I want to keep kids out of the criminal justice system and, and I'm all for the, for, for regulation. If it's not, you know, the drug cartels that are regulating, I mean, and, and, and for Prop uh, 64, the money is going into treatment options and education and and things like that, that are much needed. So it is, um, really to protect, uh, people from not having to have a lifelong felony on their record and, and all the problems, all the roadblocks to recovery and reintegration that that creates. Yeah. yeah. There was one thing that I read that said, if you wanted to create a society with the highest rate of addiction and suicide, we've done that with the war on drugs. That's exactly what we've done. We've created a society that allows the highest rate of addiction in the world and incarceration 
And and because when you start arresting people and giving them criminal records, it doesn't make them want to use less because they learned their lesson. It makes their life messed up, which is going to make them use more. Right. It just adds more more trauma, drama, et cetera, to their lives, and not just their lives. I mean, I, I talk a lot about this, about what it does to families, and 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 a lot of our work is trying to educate families that these these are not bad people doing bad things because they woke up one morning and said, "Hey, I want to destroy my life and make my family's life horrible." You know, it's it's, and I always tell people never to give up hope. Um, nice. You know, my. My younger son was in 19 different treatment facilities, and you know I was called an enabler, codependent, whatever. And it, it, no, I mean you kick. Um, uh, here's the thing: my son's alive. You have to keep loving this person and help shepherd them into the kinds of, uh, you know, compassionate treatment options that are available to them. Yes. Um, and. Yeah. So. Well, it's, it's easier to blame. A lot of people want to blame the person themselves like, oh, you're just an addict. Get off dope because it's easier to do that than it is to go, put the work in and love someone who is going through that because it's hard. It's hard. It takes yeah. a toll on, on everyone who's involved. I have a, one of my best friends is addicted to fentanyl now and I can't talk to him very often and it's hard to get a hold of him. But I'm not going to give up. No, no, you just can't. Yeah, we're losing so many wonderful, precious lives. And I know so many mothers who've lost a child now, and it's tragic, and 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 it's still. And when you lose a child to overdose, there's still stigma. There's just people, you know, that so not only do they have to go through the pain of losing their child, but they go through the pain of of, of societal stigma about of almost how, like they how, deserved it in a way, like a, a yeah. weird. It's so, it's so weird that we we think that way about people. These are people's lives. Someone was hurting, and they were self-medicating, and because they had to buy it on the streets, they got a, a higher dose than they were expecting, and it killed them. And then it's on them. How does that make it? It's so yeah. awful. It, it, it is awful. Um, and so you know, we have a long way to go. It's funny when I, I when I started the, a new path, we started with free parents, and um, and you know, really the big thing was treatment instead of incarceration. So when we when we passed that law, one of uh, our co-founders said, "Okay, well, we did what we set out to do. I'm done." And, and I said, oh, my God, no, there's so much more to do. I mean, you just kind of start scratching the surface of the wrongs that need to be righted and, and, and the workload ahead. But I have to say I have seen a change over the last 20 years. I mean, I've seen gradual progress at least. I mean, I can say the word harm reduction now, and people don't say, oh, my God, you want to you want to give needles to, to addicts yeah. kind of you know, response? It's, it's, it, I'm getting much more of a tolerant and educated response these days. But, but still, there is so far to go. It is. Well, look, um, look what your neighbor to the north just did. I mean, that's a huge step forward with Oregon. So you guys could be, uh, and everybody's going to see it work. They're going to think, everybody's like, oh, they're crazy. When it works, maybe we can take a lesson and say, hey, time to change the laws. We're hoping that California will have a decrim bill in 2024. We're starting the groundwork that in California um, but but it's but but you know you mentioned Portugal it's nice to be able to I always try not to say I'm against this without saying what my vision of how it will work differently right yes and when you have um, uh, European uh, governments and and particularly the Portugal model is great because it's been studied nine ways to study a 10-year study of it, um, it that you could say, I know we're not a small country like Portugal, where the United States is much more complicated, but there's certainly lessons that we can learn about how we could proceed to do the same, right? Yes. Um, so. Yeah, we need to take a, a lesson, especially like when we said they've got their addiction down to almost zero. I mean, their overdose down to almost zero. And, um, and actually, one thing I wanted to talk to you about overdose, because my cousin said you were a, you're a big proponent for Narcan and saying mothers that have... A, if you or if you have any somebody who's an addict in your life, have that on hand. Be ready to save their life. So, explain that a little. So, in in 2014, I testified for a bill in California that allows organizations like ours to um, do overdose prevention trainings and distribute Narcan. I mean, there's there's been first responders that have had Narcan for years, but my campaign was mothers or family members are often the first first responders, yes, right? definitely. So why would I not want to have Narcan in my medicine cabinet if I know that my son is at risk? 
And um, and so that was the idea. And we started, um, the, the law passed, and we uh, have been doing trainings in San Diego County for a, a new path. And then we have mothers across the nation, you know, distributing Narcan. Sometimes out of the trunk of their cars, but sometimes actually, you know, we, we, we've done trainings. Um, we made sure that the sheriff's department had them so that he, they could give Narcan to people coming out of prison, um, particularly early release due to COVID-19. Um, but so it expanded from doing parent-to-parent -parent, uh, trainings to all over the place. So we go to the syringe exchanges and distribute there and the probation, civic organizations, parent groups, et cetera. And in San Diego County, since we started, we've trained about 78, over 7,800 people. And our last numbers of reported saves were 1,892 reversals. I have That's to break amazing. You have to, yeah. That is absolutely amazing. Those yeah. lives that are and saved. From, wow. from, you know, when I testified, it was sort of like, well, why would we do that if they're, you know, and, and oh, this is what they said. Well, I would give it to them once, but if they don't get it, then, and then I'm like, what, then they don't deserve to live? Yeah, what? I have a friend who had Narcan reversed five times, and she's a fabulous human being. I mean, she she's a mother and grandmother, and she she um, she works with people coming out of prison, helping them to get jobs and stuff. Are you saying that this life wasn't worth saving five times? You know, it's 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 incredible. It is incredible, um, and and you know, people in the '30s, before the war, before they outlawed heroin, they could live normal lives. They went to their doctor, they got their heroin, they worked, they were fathers, they had their family. They got, the people we didn't have to pay for the, everything was fine. And, they, and a lot of the doctors, when they outlawed it, were against it. And some of those doctors got arrested for still prescribing heroin. And the doctor said, "I'm just doing what's best for my patient. I know what's going to happen if I stop this prescription." And right, and doctors, the number one thing is do no harm, right? So yeah. and that's a harm reduction measure. It's uh, yeah. 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 But um, also, do you know? So, do you when you do these classes or to coach people on Narcan? Do you talk about the uh, one thing I was reading about was it's called the post Narcan overdose, where an addict will get a dose of Narcan and be completely because it take the Narcan binds to your opioid receptors and pushes all the opiates off of the receptors, so they immediately go through withdrawal because they don't have opiates. And the Narcan half-life is only half that of opiates. So at, so the opiate that you overdose on is going to come back on some effect. But if you go and do another dose right after that, you're going to get both of those, and people will overdose right after that. And then they'll overdose. Yeah, we, re we train them to really stay with them. The only time that people will sometimes leave is the, if they're afraid of getting arrested. We have 911 Good Samaritan laws, so they're not supposed to be arrested if they, you know, are if, if but, but we do worry about people who have felonies on their records. So we, we tell them all about the, the position. Um, well, we say never leave them, never leave them until yeah. you know, an ambulance arrives uh, and call 911. But, but if you do have to leave them uh, because you're afraid of arrest yourself, then putting them into, the, into a position you know, on their side where they can't, et cetera. And we do tell them when they wake up that they're in very da uh, high danger of, of overdosing if they use again. Yeah, uh, it's fentanyl. It's complicated. We're, we have to, whereas we used to give out just the there's two two uh, doses in one kit. This uh, we've had to give out two boxes lately because fentanyl is uh, so much stronger. Oh, and, wow. Um, uh, but you know, I tell you, when we started in 2014. We were we were training people with a needle and an orange how to how to, to do it, and then we got a kind of a funny form of, of a nasal, and then we got the FZO that is a really expensive, ridiculously expensive um, little machine that talks to you to uh, auto injector, and now the um, what we have is is was I'll show you, um, it's so easy to use, um, and to, and to carry in your purse. Now, as I carry this uh, kit, and it's just like that. I'm sure you've seen it. I don't know. So it's just a nasal oh. spray. You just, or is it a and shot? It, and it go in one nostril okay. or two. Or I mean, it's almost mistake-proof. And, and if you're not sure if they're overdosed or not, or if they've had an opioid overdose or not, it's not going to hurt them if they don't have it. Gotcha. I mean, it's so safe. 
But um, so my thing is, is use it anyway. It's not going to hurt them whether they have opioids, and it'll save a life if they do have opioids in their system. So, um, so it's our, our trainings are still about a half hour because people like to talk and want to know, and we tell them, you know, what's the difference between an opioid overdose or a, or over amping on meth and things like that. Um, and that the higher uh, the higher risk uh, when you're you've been away from your drug uh, uh, for a while and uh, the tolerance issue and um, so all of that. So most of our trains are a half hour, but like the the training we have at, at the jail is a video and it's a ten minute video, and then they can have the Narcan on leaving. And the one that we have at the county is a half hour video, and then we do zooms. And I mean, since COVID, we've had to be really yeah. Uh, creative about how to continue this work right that's right and you guys are still shut down right like a lot i think it's full open in june i believe yeah yeah we're just starting to open up uh, actually today um, in our county um but um but we've been um, we of course we go to the syringe exchange you know because uh, we just can't have people dying on the street so the neat was there to you know go with their masks and their the whole nine yards, but we still, we continued that. The rest of the trainings went on Zoom and then people just pick them up on the front doorstep and stuff. Yeah. But so, yeah, we kept it going. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, because of the isolation, social distancing and depression and uh, during COVID, it, it just, did you know that um, drug use, uh, overdoses went up 13% during COVID? Was th- I was going to ask you that, actually. It was on the list. 13% uh, drug abuse went up. Well, uh, I mean, depression, when yeah. people lose their jobs, when that, and that's the biggest cause of abuse of drugs anyway is when people lose their jobs. And that's so economic issues are a huge factor. And then when you lock people up on top of it, you're just really crushing someone who's already been crushed by something else. It's Right. And, you know, my sons are both uh, drug and alcohol counselors, and that it's just not the same to be talking to people in a Zoom room as it is to, to in, in person, and uh, you know, it's so it's yeah, it's been difficult. Um, my my one son has been seeing patients or patients, you know, clients, whatever you want to say, in in person for for a while, for a long time, even during COVID, because they just didn't want to be losing people who, who couldn't, you know, satisfactorily connect um, online. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, the, losing the human touch, um, people that, you know, if you're doing therapy through sessions and even uh, my wife has, her therapist is now only on the phone. So it's, you, you really need that personal connection, especially yeah. people that don't have other people in their lives. They, they, they might really count on that. So yeah. that's where we're seeing these addiction numbers rise. Let me ask you this. Do you guys have uh, safe injection sites in California? We are working on it. Up in the Bay Area, we've been working on a site for a long time. Um, it's not open yet. I, I know that there are underground. Oh, there are. Yeah. Not, not legal. Now, what, not, what's the pushback? Is it just there's a, just people don't want it because they think it's going to... I mean, people are doing... They're shooting up either way, whether you want them to or not. So You know, it's so counterintuitive because would you rather... Um, help people to go into a safe, or do you want to have needles all over the park across the street where kids can run into them and things like that? And the, and the beautiful thing about the safe uh, consumption sites, which we, yeah, I'm sure you know about Insight and Canada and stuff, mm-hmm. is that people are, are greeted like they're human beings and, and that we care about them, and they'll come and they'll use safely, and we care that you don't die. And then pretty soon they say, well, you know what? Let me. Do you have resources for treatment? And, and you know, and like in, in Insight, they can go right upstairs to get their treatment, et, et cetera. And and so it's just engaging people. You know, like you said earlier, like human beings, uh, and we care about you, and that offering another way of living that isn't as difficult. And um, so you know, they've been safe consumption sites have proven uh, their efficacy. Um, but there's still, you know, the NIMBY, not my backyard, blah, 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 which is just insanity because that pushes right back onto the street and in their faces. It is. It's just the fear tactics. If, if one side of the political spectrum says we want this, then the other side just says they want drugs and they want more people on drugs. And then people just, all the propaganda they've been fed for years on the war on drugs, they just go with that and they go, yeah, we don't want drugs, no, no injection site here. Not realizing that you're not stopping people from shooting up by not having that. 
that you're just right. stopping people from being safe. I mean. Right, right. Yeah, so we have a ways to go on that, but at least people are talking about it. It used to be, you know, I'd say even three years ago, and you just would mention they they go gasp. I have to be honest, as a parent, it took me a long time to 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 realize that I, I wasn't supposed to, like, just, you know, when I found needles in the room, I, I throw them away, et cetera. It took me a while to realize, no, no, I can't go to the, you know, to, to the syringe exchanges and, and, and you know. So it's, it's not like I... Um, but the more you learn, the more you understand. The, the less you fear, the less you hate. The, you know, it just goes like that. And that's why the educational component of what we do is so important and why I think it's so important to have parent-driven advocacy that, you know, parents who have, have gone through this. One of our biggest things, and I, I alluded to it earlier, is we have a campaign called True Love, True Love Not Tough Love. Uh, the whole concept of codependency was something that was just thrown at us by the healthcare community. Without it, it wasn't based on fact or science or anything else, right? So it, and it, um, so we are saying that you can't take away my intrinsic right, maternal right, to nurture and protect my offspring. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, yeah. and we, we understand that there's a fine line between helping and hurting. We get that and we take that responsibility seriously. But 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 that that we are encouraging people to continue to love your 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 relative, your offspring, your whatever, and and, and be there for them um, so that you can help them to move into whatever it, their needs, uh, services that they need. Right. Yes. So. Um, uh, that's one of our big campaigns because it's a big one. That's an ingrained thing. Oh, oh, you're just an enabler. You're just a, a codependent. You should try tough love. When most of us understand that tough love would mean either jail or death for our kids, and we, you know, are not willing to and do also, that. Tough love's easier. It's a cop out. It, it, tough love means I can turn my back on you and I don't have to deal with you. True love right. is I have to help you, and it's going to take some energy, and it's going to take time, and it takes work. And people, like you say, if your neighbor's kid's an addict, you can people want to look at him and go, oh, that kid's just a, a screw-up. And then all of a yeah. sudden, if your kid ha- it happens to your kid, you see it differently. So you have to be, you have to put yourself in their shoes. This is, these are people's children. Yeah. And, you know, that brings me to that picture I just realized is in your, um, is in, in your study back there. It's on your website. I found that. Oh, that- yeah, it's a very powerful image, I thought. Thank you. You know, when you're stigma busting, this is my son as a baby, and we oh. just drew, uh, drew uh, bars on him and, and basically saying this, too, could happen to your child, right? Um, no, yeah. no matter what walk of life you're from, what, what cultural, economic uh, background you come from, this could happen. In, in the United States, your child can end up behind bars for, for, for smoking marijuana or... And a lot yeah. of times, especially with the, in the like I know in the like inner city communities, these uh, some of these black children are, are 13, 14 years old and getting charged as adults and doing real prison time. And yeah, some of them were selling drugs. But if you start selling drugs at 13, you're, you don't know what you're doing. You, this is your job that was offered. It's a, a way into, into some money. There's not a lot else going on. And then we lock you up. It's just it's absolutely yeah. horrible. But yeah, these are people's children. And I think if people look at it like that, like they look at these young adults, like it's your fault. Well, a 17-year-old or 18-year-old kid, their brain's not even fully developed. They, they, they're right from wrong. They're still learning how the world works. And then we lock them up. Yeah. It, and, and, and you've labeled somebody for life. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that my older son, you know, uh, finding recovery is tough. I have so, so much respect for people that, that, that can change their lives that way. I mean, you have to change everything. Most people can't change which side of the bed they sleep on, right? Mm-hmm. That, that change is hard. But they have to change even listening to that voice and saying, I don't, I don't buy that voice in my brain anymore. That's, it's, it's, it's driving me to destructive things. Um, so, so I have so much respect for people who, who can do the journey of recovery. Now, add to that seeing yourself as a, a convict or an ex-convict and uh, somebody that, that is a bad person and you have to identify because you have to identify with some somebody, right? Um, and, and so for my older son to stop seeing himself as a, a, a an ex-convict that didn't deserve uh, you know, a real life. And that, that I think that lasted longer than seeing yourself as an addict who couldn't find recovery. Um, so it, it's just another 
big roadblock um, to recovery and to, ha- to finding a successful, uh, you know, life. Um, so I, I, I tell parents that, you know, ne- just never, ever, ever give up um, and, and, and keep hope and, and remember, you know, I, here's another thing. When people are in the, in the midst of their addiction, they're not always the nicest people in the world, right? No, they're <laughs> they not. They're really manipulative and difficult. And, well, they and, lie. You know, and, and absolutely, lying is a part of it. And, um, and so I always say, just remember and believe that that person that you love, that you raised, is there. And, you know, and when they can find their way. And, and uh, my younger son is, is such an example of that. He's just extraordinary human being right now. Um, and but there were times that, that some family members wanted to walk away from him because he was not fun to be around, right? Yeah. And now he's just uh, I'm just so I'm I'm so proud of both my sons. Yeah, and I do think though if if they went through addiction in a in a world like Switzerland where it's more legalized and and you know you can go to a doctor and talk to your doctor, the shadiness, the, any uh, lies that happen with addiction, none of that's going to happen if you can do it in a legal right. society. It's because yeah. you're scoring on the streets. You're trying to hide it. It's stigmatized. You don't. You want to tell people you're not doing something. You have to lie about why you pawned your guitar, or pawned whatever you had to go to the pawn shop, and then you need help getting it out. But you have all these excuses of why, because you can't just say, "I'm a drug addict and drugs are very expensive on the streets," and that's why I'm doing all this. Right. Right. Well, here's another thing that we we talk about. I I, I have friends who would say, "Okay, well, I understand." Um, you know, people who have addictive problems, but, you know, those, those people that sell drugs, we just got to lock those up. And there was even efforts to, you know, make them the, the, uh, responsible for people's de- overdose deaths and stuff. I mean, it's just crazy. And so educating people that it's, it's like a pyramid scheme. I mean, a lot of people sell drugs. They sell, uh, you know, they, they buy enough so that they can have some and sell the rest. Yeah. And I mean, and so, so it's pretty hard to find somebody who's addicted to heroin who hasn't sold heroin as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And yet, like you said, like if you're paying for a drug that's been uh, jacked up, you know, a thousand percent on the streets, then you're going to have to, uh, women will sell their bodies uh, and guys will, yeah. will steal or they'll sell drugs themselves just to support their own habit because they can't afford it. And if you legalize, exactly. none of that, all that goes away once again. So you have to think about these things. Um, but also like, so the idea of how do we change people's mind? How do we get people to understand that it's going to cost you less money if we legalize and we have to have some of our tax money go in to fund some of these, um, clinics that are going to offer drugs, people are going to freak out. Oh, I'm not, my tax money won't pay for drugs. But what they have to realize is your tax money is paying for drugs right now through arrests. Already. And it's, and, right. it's, and it's a lot higher bill you're paying than you would if you did it the other way. So, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a whole that's an argument that's a, a tough, uh, tough road ahead for us uh, as advocates to to have people understand that. You're right; they already are paying, and they're paying for this massive prison industrial complex. That that it, rather than uh, taking that money as Portugal did and putting it into treatment services of all kinds. And, mm-hmm. And you have a lot less deaths. You're going to have less addiction. People aren't going to be stealing. And also, all the inner city violence is all through drug gangs. And you can eliminate that. And I like what some states are doing when they've legalized marijuana. They've made it a, a point to give the African-American community dibs at some of these jobs because like, they were the ones hurt by the, this to begin with. So let's not just take that and get put it right into our pockets with the money. Let's make sure that they have a, a, a big chunk of this business gets to go to those communities. They get to keep, you know. Profit. You're right. There's a, there's a lot of restoration that has to be, happen here because of these, uh, the way we've handled it. And and yes, it should go to the community's hardest hit, which are the communities of color and poverty. And um, yes, I, I like that too. And, 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 and there's a big, big movement afoot with that. That's, that's absolutely, I, I think it's great. And I, I know, I don't know all states, is California doing that? Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. are. Okay. Uh, Part of our Prop 64 that dollars are going that way. That's very that's great. Florida is not. That's where I'm at right now. And um, we have medical, and I think it's only a few companies that have dibs at it. But uh, we'll see what happens. I don't see us going recreational anytime soon with our. Well, you know, Florida didn't have syringe. It, it couldn't syringes were were illegal. I have a one of our Moms United uh, co-founders and and a past member 
is in Florida, and and she was she fought just for uh, syringe exchanges. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, so yeah, Florida does. It's not one of the more progressive states when it comes to no, arm reduction. They're, they're not at all. Um, no, we have a lot of problems down here. This Florida is a, a weird, a very weird state, and I live in a very, Lee County. is very strange. I, but um, this is where my work is, so I'm here. We're trying to do do the good work here, you know. And there's a lot of uh, progressive thinking here, but there's just a lot of the other also. It's it's a big mix, so it's correct. And there, there's a big harm reduction coalition there. She started the Suncoast Harm Reduction Coalition, but there. Let me write that down. Suncoast. Suncoast Harm Reduction. Okay. Project. Yeah, what it's called. Reach out to them. Yeah, yeah, she'd be a good person to talk to too. She's fascinating. She's one of my best friends. But uh, it's Julia Negron, and um, you know, she's working with moms there too. That's that is great. And- I really love what you're doing. Um, so before we go, you, is there a way uh, my listeners can support or give their support or what, what can they do to, to help the cause? Yeah, I would love uh, for you to join us. You know, with Moms United, we have uh, representatives in 35 states across the country and, and partnerships with six countries and um, are trying to grow that because it really is a global issue. It's a, a, the war on drugs is a global war on drugs. It is. And, um, and so we're trying to do a big mothers across borders uh, efforts. Um, so if you want to get involved, you can join us on our website, uh, momsunited.net or anewpath.org, and we'll respond back to you and would love to have you join us in any capacity. The coalition, um, we have people who, who don't, are not involved in any other uh, uh, groups where they are. Um, and want to be involved in a in, in in a larger effort like like Moms United, and then Moms United also has um, organizations that join us so that we're kind of an umbrella so that we can uplift the work that they're doing. You can join us in that capacity as well, and, the, and in return, we're we're just amplifying all of our voices together for change. So so uh, please join us in any of those ways, and if you would prefer just to call us directly, our phone number is six one nine. All right. That that is awesome. And I'm going to put a a post out there about this also. I'm going to, you know, you don't mind if I put a post with that picture of the, of your son behind bars? Oh, please do. Yeah. I I think it's just a powerful image for people to realize that these are, we're locking up our children. I mean, right. So, um, so I'm going to put that up there and put this information up there and I'm going to join myself. And, um, thank you, Aaron. And I love and what I you're love doing. It's it's absolutely you. great. It's absolutely like you said. How many people did you say that your the the Narcan movement thing you've done have saved? How many lives? Uh, one thousand eight hundred ninety-two, and that was as of the seventh of this month. And I know that it's a lot more. And don't forget, those are just reported exactly. saves. A lot of people, exactly. Yeah. But that's so absolutely amazing, that. inspiring. I I absolutely love what you're you're doing. I'm so so glad I got to talk to you. I am too. I'm so glad, and I and I love the name Aaron, by the way. Of course, because my son's name is Aaron. <laughs> well, I'm glad you like. Um, yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll let you go, and I'm gonna um, give my cousin a call later and talk to her. Thank her for 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 introducing us, and thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Aaron. All right, I'll talk to you later. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. Peace, Nick's. Thanks for listening. Uh, Next week, I'll have my sister Kristen back on. She'll be down here in Siesta Key, so it'll be in person. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much for listening. I'd like to give a special thanks to Gretchen for being on here. Remember, check out anewpath.org and momsunited.net. See you next week. And peace Peace out. out.